All right, so if you got your Bibles, stay in John chapter 21. We're doing a couple things today, one of which is we are capping off our time in John, which we have been in for exactly a year now. We kicked off John last Easter, and, uh, you know, we've had some breaks here and there, but I am so delighted to be kind of wrapping up uh, this book together with you guys. Um, And so we're going to be doing a couple of things, uh, but first, I want to walk through what Nicole just walked us through in the text. In John chapter 21, it feels a bit like an epilogue, right? All the other gospels sort of end with Jesus' resurrection and maybe a story or two, but in John, we have a whole nother chapter that comes after Jesus' resurrection, and there's some really interesting interactions that we see in John chapter 21. So very quickly, one or two of you guys shout out to me, what's happening in John chapter 21? What's happening here? Yeah, he shows himself again to more disciples. John even says it's like the third time this has happened. What else? Yeah, they're fishing, right? And they're, are they catching fish? No, not at first. Absolutely. What else? What else? What else? Then they did catch fish. Do you think they tried the right side before Jesus said try the right side? Do you think they probably thought to maybe try both sides of the boat? Yeah, exactly. All right, so we have maybe some miraculous fish catching situation happening here. What else do we see? Yeah, manifested himself. They hung out with him. Yeah. What else do we see here? There's a lot going on in this kind of epilogue. What's that? To engage and follow. Jesus is telling them to engage, to follow. That's good. What about with Peter? What's happening with Peter towards the very end? Kind of have this momentous mirroring of something that happened before the crucifixion. Jesus is sitting with him around the fire, just like Nicole was so honestly saying, like, wait, am I rereading the same thing over again? Like Jesus asking him over and over again, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it sort of mirrors this moment when he denies Jesus before his crucifixion three times. And Jesus is saying, do you love me? Peter says, yes, of course. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Anything else that we have going on in here? You guys are doing great. Anything else that you see? Oh, what are they asking about, Luke? If he's going to live for where the heck did that come from? Apparently, there's some rumor around that uh, John was going to live forever, or at least live until Jesus returns again. John 21 is kind of a strange chapter, right? He catches uh, his disciples while they're out fishing, presumably going back to their day jobs after this whole resurrection business. And he gives them some either epic fishing advice or some miraculous fishing advice here. And after some delicious, like, I don't know, breakfast burritos with fish in them on the beach, whatever's happening there, we see two really key interactions at the end of John chapter 21. One is that he restores a very broken Peter. Like, if we just think of the the lead-up in Peter's life as he's following Jesus— And we see the crushing moment where he is denying the one he's been following for three some odd years, right as Jesus is about to go to the cross. And we have this sweet, tender moment sitting across from the fire on the beach where Jesus is restoring him, showing him love, he's showing him grace, he's showing him mercy. But then we also have Jesus 
correcting kind of a weird rumor that was going around that somehow John would live forever, which seems like a very strange add-on. We actually don't have a lot of info on how or why this was being talked about here. But these two key verses, or these two key interactions, both end in a similar space. So one where Jesus is restoring Peter and where he's correcting this weird kind of theological debate or rumor that's happening, they both end the same way. So in John chapter 21, verse 19, after saying all this, Jesus and Peter going back and forth, he said to Peter, what? Follow me. Said to Peter, follow me. Then in 21 and 22, just a few verses down, When Peter saw him, him that is John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, what? Follow me. Okay, seems like that might be important. Anytime we see something in the Bible that's repeated, it should be, we should be paying close attention to it. And these two identical commands come from two different situations. One is restoration, healing from brokenness. Not just restoration and status and identity, but we'll see throughout the book of Acts, restoration to his like place among the disciples and his role in the early church. So restoration, but also distraction. Like somehow, some way, they're getting distracted. The disciples are going off on this theological debate, following these strange rumors about John living forever. And Jesus corrects that by bringing him back to a singular command. And so with restoration, we see that Jesus meeting Peter in a very tender moment, bringing healing. And he's saying to Peter, who brings up this weird rumor, he says, what is that to you? AKA, what are you doing? What's the point? Like, who cares? Like, that is, you're missing the mark altogether. He's like, don't worry about it. You worry about something different altogether, which is what? What does Jesus tell Peter to worry about? Not quite, but what? That's the corrective, but then what does he actually say? Follow me. He's like, don't worry about that. Mind your own business. You follow me. And it's kind of from this moment, this interaction that we have here, amidst a tender moment where Jesus is building Peter back up, and sort of a corrective moment maybe where he's bringing him down a little bit, But the commands are the same to follow him. And it's from that interaction, we're going to be spending the next couple of weeks together unpacking what does that even mean? What does that look like? Whether you're in need of healing and restoration or whether you're getting distracted by things that do not matter, Jesus' command is the same. You follow me. But here's the real question. What does that even mean? What does following Jesus mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What, is that, what does following Jesus look like in the chaos and confusion of our modern, digital, and very distracted world around us? Now, one of the reasons I asked that question, and we may have some answers popping to our mind, like what does that actually mean? And I actually want you to take a beat and consider that and think about that. Because if we have a room full of people that claim to be Christians that follow Jesus, and we ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or what does discipleship look like? 
we might get a different answer based on how many people are in the room. Because we all come to this question, this moment, with our own life experience, our own baggage, good and bad, our own knowledge, our own kind of understanding of the scriptures, and we might come out with some different answers. And one of the hopes in this kind of series that we do at least once a year, kind of this primer on what it means to following Jesus, is that we'd actually be aligned and we would agree together on what it means to actually follow Jesus in our time and our place. And one of the reasons we believe that's so important is because the idea of Christianity has gotten quite blurry over the years, some 2,000 odd years from this moment right here. And when we think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple, what does it mean to be a Christian, leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And for many people, not you, I know, but for many others in our life, being a Christian is what you are when you have a vague concept of God and show up at church every once in a while. And that's it. Maybe that was you at some point in your life. It was me at some point in my life. Maybe that's friends or family that you have currently or at some point in your life. That to be a Christian just means you kind of believe there is a God out there somewhere. God slash universe slash being slash whatever. And then you show up at church every once in a while to get your spiritual high. And then that's it. And then we walk away, we go back to our own thing, our own week, and And following Jesus actually has no real impact on what we do with our time in our workplace, with our family. And uh, there is a Christian writer who has profoundly influenced how and what of discipleship here at Anthem. And that's... I love downtown. Uh, And that writer is Dallas Willard. He's profoundly influenced how we think through some of these questions. And I think I only have three quotes from him today, so we'll we'll keep it tight. But he says in his book, The Great Omission, the great omission from the Great Commission, which we know is Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples, etc., etc., is the idea that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. Christians generally don't have a plan for doing everything that Jesus commanded. We don't even, as a rule, have a plan for learning this ourselves or perhaps assume it is simply impossible. And that explains the yawning abyss today between being Christian and being a disciple. Which I don't know where you're at. You may look at that and go like, ooh, ouch, I need to hear that. And you may go like, yeah, exactly, that's the problem. And I think we as a church community over the years have seen that same, to quote Willard, yawning abyss and saying we want to not cultivate that in our church community. We want to cultivate something different. And so our hope with this series, and we do come back to this year after year, is to establish some common ground about what it actually means to follow Jesus and to not let slide this yawning abyss between being a disciple of Jesus, and that is reserved for some, and everyone else can just sort of have a vague idea of God and show up at church every once in a while. It is simply not the kind of church we want to cultivate and be a part of. And he goes on to say in that same book, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner 
of human existence. That the kind of life with him that Jesus describes, is just, the Bible describes it as a way of life. A way of life in community around the teachings of Jesus. And to live this way requires some transformation from the inside out. And not just like Holy Spirit transformation for salvation, but transformation from what most Western culture tells you about what it means to follow Jesus. Is this kind of deep, authentic, radical change of character even possible? Even in the chaos of our modern, digital, distracted world, is it possible? And we'd say the resounding answer is, yes, it's possible, but it's not inevitable. And so what we are hoping to do over the next couple of weeks is lay out two things primarily. The first is what we mean when we say disciple. So it is some foundation laying and how to live that out. We'll talk about what that actually looks like as we live out that life. But also intertwined with what it means to be a disciple and how to live that out is a bit of our working theory of change. Because I think when we come to the text and see the kind of life that Jesus describes, it is both descriptional and aspirational. Like it should be describing the life that we do have in Jesus, but it's aspirational in the sense that there is still room to grow here. And we want to lay out how we actually approach growing into this life. And so today what I'm doing is I'm just trying to help us as a community intellectually understand what we've been invited into as it pertains to following Jesus. And then as we move forward in the series, uh, series, we're going to look at a few different angles of how we embrace this life. Next week, we're going to talk about practice, what it actually looks like to do something. And then we're going to talk about transformation and the Holy Spirit's role in our change and transformation. But what I hope to do today with you guys is just simply lay out some common groundwork for what we mean when we say disciple and what that means for us today. So as you think about discipleship, in your mind, you don't have to answer out loud, but in your mind, what is that? Is it a class you take? Is it reserved for the super Christian? Is it for the spiritual elite? Is it maybe a program? Or is it like a one-on-one mentoring relationship? Like when you think discipleship, what does that mean? Now, depending on what and how much church background you have, you might have some answers immediately coming to the table. But what I want to do is I want to take us back to what that word meant when Jesus was using it. When he said, be my disciple, what did that mean then? And does it still mean the same thing today? So in Hebrew, the word for disciple was Talmudin, which is kind of a derivative of the word Talmud, which means instruction. So it just meant someone who was of instruction, or more simply, a student, like a student in a class. I think there's a better English word that captures a bit of this word, and it's the word apprentice. We've got a couple of electricians in the room. We've got a couple of, like, creative art people in the room. Like, and in these particular fields and others, there is a bit, actually with electricians, there's like a formal apprenticeship that you're in. It's like years you have to put in hours until you can become, I don't know what the, a master tradesman or a craftsman, or I don't know what the, the actual title is that you would kind of graduate to, but there is a fixed season where you are an apprentice of somebody else. 
And it's robust. It's three-dimensional. It's not just learning. And that's why I like the word apprentice a little bit better than student, because student, at least in our context, implies classroom setting, where you're doing what you do, sit, and I'm doing what a teacher does, talk, and at the end of it we say we all learn something, right? But apprenticeship is quite a bit more robust than that. In an apprenticeship, James, what are some of the things that you're doing? Yeah. 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 Is there learning taking place? Yeah. Do stuff. Yeah. So the idea of a disciple of Jesus is quite the same. In fact, when Jesus was using this word, he did not invent this word, and the idea of discipleship or apprenticeship is not even a uniquely Christian idea. And in Jesus' particular context, it would have been in the context of, like, the temple and rabbis and those who are learning. And so if you are a good Jewish boy and girl, you went through some training, and sorry, ladies, for the most part, your training ended pretty quickly. And so if you were a Jewish male— what was the absolute tops would have been becoming an apprentice and eventually a rabbi of your own. So you would be taking classes, you would be memorizing and learning things, and you would be following some kind of teacher that would help train you in their ways. And so if we transport ourselves briefly back to first century Palestine, becoming an apprentice to a rabbi would have been the ultimate goal of each and every Jewish man. And as a disciple or an apprentice to a rabbi, you would have had three primary goals. They're right here on the screen. If you've been hanging out with us for any length of time, this is nothing new. But if you were a rabbi in first century Palestine, this is what you would have expected from your students, from your apprentices, from your Talmudine. And that is to what? Be with your rabbi, which is just simply hanging around them. Discipleship to a rabbi was a 24-7 thing. It wasn't a job or a class or a hobby. You were with them all day, every day. Second goal was to become like them. Your goal was to become a carbon copy of your rabbi. Mannerisms, tone of voice, how they dressed, how they taught, what they taught, that was your primary goal, is you'd become carbon copies of this person that you were following. And the third goal would have been to do what they did. Eventually, the whole point of an apprenticeship was that you'd become a rabbi yourself. So the hope was in a few years or decades, the rabbi would send you off, you'd leave your rabbi, and you'd go make your own disciples and repeat this process all over again. Now that's the context Jesus was living in, teaching in. That's the temple context he was a part of. And so as he's calling disciples to himself, and we see in the narrative of all four biographies of Jesus, he's doing these exact same things with his disciples. So to follow Jesus is to apprentice Jesus, the rabbi, which is to orient your life around the same three goals. We see this in the text with his disciples, and it is for us today as well. And their first goal is to what? Someone say it. You know it. Be with Jesus, right? So be with your rabbi. If that was the context in following Jesus, the first and most important and primary goal is just be with him. To spend all our time with him. This is a baseline of any who would follow Jesus. We say all the time the best part of following Jesus is what? It's Jesus. We get him. 
That's the best. It's not what we can get from him. It's that we get him. He's our treasure. So the best part of following Jesus is Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 3, we see this snapshot of what that looked like with Jesus and some of his disciples. In verse 13 in Mark chapter 3, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed the twelve, whom we also named the apostles, so that they might, what? Be with him. And he might send them out to preach. But we can say, okay, that's good for them. Jesus was out there walking around, calling people to himself. What about today? Jesus isn't here today. He's not here in his physical form doing this. So what does that mean for us today? He's at the right hand of the Father. How do we be with him if he is not here with us? The answer is the Holy Spirit that he has given to us. He says, we just learned in John 14 and 16, it's better that I go so that you get my spirit. Instead of being a fixed location in his bodily form, the spirit now is with all who follow Jesus. Paul uses this language of keeping in step with the spirit. Jesus himself uses the imagery of a vine with branches in John chapter 15. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Feedback. Tell me what you see in those couple of verses. What do you see? What do you hear? Shout it out. What do you see and what do you hear in John 15? Without God, we are nothing, yeah. Our connection to him is everything. What else? What do you see? It's continual. Yeah, it's not a one-time deal. We don't say yes to Jesus once and then ignore him for the rest of our lives, right? Ongoing connection. The first goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is simply just to be with him. But how do we abide in the vine, in the chaos of our modern, digital, distracted world? It's quite difficult, isn't it? Okay, my last Willer quote, I promise. It's a long one, but it's so good, guys. Okay. He says the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. It's so gracious how he unpacks that. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new, grace-filled habit that will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. How does a quote like that hit you? What do you, what do you learn from that? What do you take away from something like that? Yeah, it's possible. 
totally. Habits, not the law of gravity. Habits can be changed. How many of you guys have changed a bad habit ever in your life? How do you do it? Does it happen overnight? How does it happen? Practice over time. Being aware of it, being constant of it. I love how he says, in the early times of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits on dwelling on things less than God. Based on that, do you feel like you're still in the early days of practicing? I do. (laughs) I still find myself dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be changed. New grace-filled habits replace the old ones. This is, as we talk about spiritual practices, that's what this is. So as we talk about the practice of reading scripture, of fasting, silence and solitude, of prayer, of community, of hospitality, generosity, simplicity, these are not ends to themselves, but they get us here to be with Jesus. In prayer, the point is not that you pray a lot. The point is that what? You're with Jesus. As you read scripture, the point is not to read scripture. The point is what? To be with Jesus. Generosity, simplicity, hospitality, community, silence and solitude, fasting. The point is what? To be with Jesus. These are new grace-filled habits replacing our old ones of laziness, of hoarding, of isolation, individualism. And these all redirect our attention back to Jesus. And the point he's trying to make here is this living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit, thankfully, because I have not gotten there yet, takes a lifetime of practice. Happens over time, over your entire life. Here's the thing. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, right when you feel like something has unlocked or something is clicking, what tends to happen after that? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone willing to share? Be a little bit vulnerable? Like you feel like, oh man, I feel like I've really dialed in my scripture reading. Like I feel like I'm in a good habit. What, what happens after that? You hit a wall? You get the chance to practice what you're learning? Put it into practice? You're aware of all the other things you need to learn. And there, there's a humility in that, in each one of those, Right? As you hit your wall, you realize, I actually do not have everything in myself to go further. I need the Spirit. As you encounter things in the text and you feel this thing up in your belly called conviction, (laughs) when you're like, how I'm living does not match the kind of Jesus life I see here. What am I going to do about it? It forces you to put it into practice with humility. And then as you sort of reach a new stage, quote-unquote, of learning or understanding or growing with Jesus, you realize how much you don't know, how much you don't do, right? And in all of those, there's, there's kind of a humility that we come to. It takes a lifetime of practice. And this is why I believe if you are advanced in years, you are There's more life behind you than there is in front of you. I am absolutely convinced people in that stage of life are either some of the most generous, compassionate, wise, humble, teachable people, or they're not. They're the opposite. 
I, I actually believe, and I've seen anecdotally, like the older you get, the less of a middle gray space there is because you become set in your ways. Those habits form. But there's something about all of these spiritual practices that lead us to be with Jesus that keeps you humble and teachable, kind, generous, gentle, self-controlled, compassionate. It takes a lifetime of practice. And the reality is you're going to be practicing one version of life or another. You're going to be practicing a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Or you're going to be practicing individualism, selfishness. I get what I want when I want. And those habits set in over time. So the first goal of apprenticing Jesus is what? You have to be louder than the motorcycles outside. Thank you. All right. The second goal is to become like him. There we go. Become like him. Out of that place of abiding with him, the goal was to actually become like him. So depending on your spiritual heritage or church background, if you have one, this might have been called spiritual growth, sanctification. Paul would just say growing in Christ or growing in maturity. All valid. But again in Mark chapter 1 verse 17, Jesus said to them, his disciples, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Which we think is either kind of cheesy or a cute kind of play on words, like, oh, they're fishermen and now they're going to hook in dudes instead of fish. Like, that's actually now, it's kind of the Hebrew idiom gets lost a little bit in translation. Uh, This was like a well-known Jewish idiom, meaning like the one who's a great teacher is a fisher of men is like, think like rock star rabbi, like the absolute tops of the rabbinical world would have been like a fisher of men. And so Jesus is not saying like, oh, hey, I'm going to go teach you how to hook in people instead of hooking in fish. What he's saying is, I'm going to make you become like me. I'm a good rabbi, Jesus. I'm going to make you like me. See what I'm doing? I want you to do those same things. Jesus was saying, come be with me and I'll make you like me. Out of that place of abiding with him, the goal was to become like him. And this is how we would talk about change, transformation, growing in maturity, becoming more like Jesus, growing into his image. All of these things are sort of bottled up in this category of becoming like him. And this is where all those internal spiritual practices that can maybe remain sort of by yourself in isolation actually start to like work themselves out in your marriage or how you parent, in your friendships, at work, in class. Like these are where all these things start to actually land. Because the reality is if you're not becoming more like Jesus, you have to go back and ask the question, am I actually in proximity to him? And am I putting what he said into practice? And the third goal for any apprentice of Jesus, who said do what Jesus did, I think maybe a a better phrase for us is to join Jesus in his work. Like join Jesus in what he is already doing. So the goal, like James was kind of referring to earlier with being an apprentice electrician, the goal is not that you would just know a lot about electricity and how to wire a house and how to not wire a house and where to put your fingers and where not to put your fingers. Like that's not the goal. I don't know a lot about electricians, so you just heard all I, you just heard all I know about electricity. The goal is not that you'd learn a lot, but the goal is that you would actually do it. 
that instead of James following someone around for the next 30 years, he's actually on sites and on projects himself doing the work. And the same thing is true of following Jesus. The point is not that you would know a lot about Jesus, although that's great. That you would not know a lot about the Bible, that's great. I have a degree in one, work on a degree in the other. Like, that's, that's great stuff to know a lot about the Bible. Super helpful, not the point. The goal is that you yourself would become the kind of person that is with him, actually becoming like him and actually joining him in his work, and dare I say, doing the things that Jesus did. That's the point. As Jesus is bringing us along on the apprentice journey, the goal is he would not have a whole lot of smart people holed up in libraries, but he would have people in the world doing the things that he did when he was in the world. Back to Mark chapter 3, in verse 13 and 15, he went up on the mountain, called him to those whom he desired. They came to him. He appointed the twelve so that it might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is what Jesus had been doing. He had been preaching and casting out demons. The book of Mark in particular focuses a lot on Jesus freeing people from the demonic. And so what does he do with his disciples? He calls them to be with him, and then what does he do next? At the end of verse 14 and in verse 15, what does he do? sends them out to do what? To preach, to cast out demons, to do what he was doing exactly. So the point was not that they would just be near to Jesus and seeing him do all these amazing things. The point is that he would send them out and they would go on and continue his work, freeing people from the bondage of sin and death and darkness and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. This is what Jesus had been doing. And at some point, Jesus says, all right, you're ready get out there. And we see in the book of Luke, he actually sends some people out, and they come back. And you know what he does? He debriefs with them. All right, what happened? All right, tell me what happened. All right, cool. You had some people uh, that were freed from demons. That's awesome. Okay, hey, so this particular demon needs to be cast out with prayer and fasting. So go back and try the prayer and fasting thing. Okay, you tell me about what happened when you were there. And he's training them. This is like great coach work, right? Okay, you go out, do your thing. Come back. Let's talk about it. How did it go? Sweet. Keep doing that. Okay, try this next time. Okay, maybe not so much with that next time. And he sends it back out again. And we see the whole book of Acts is this in action. They go out, they're scattered, and they go out into all the world, planting churches, preaching the gospel, healing people, casting out demons, living in this new community of kingdom of heaven values, creating communities of good and blessing and hospitality and welcome. This is what the point was. The basic idea here that we're just trying to all agree upon together is that to follow Jesus isn't this sort of passive or intellectual thing. But we take on postures of being an apprentice, a student, a learner, disciple. And our whole life is oriented around and through being with him, becoming like him, and joining him in his work. And this is it. So when we say we want to be a community becoming and cultivating resilient disciples, this is what we mean. When we say this is what it means to follow Jesus. When we say discipleship, this is what we mean. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what he did. 
This is the undercurrent for everything we do as a church. When we're together on Sundays, when we're scattered into house churches, as we engage on mission and hospitality and generosity together, as we serve one another and our city and the world, this is the undercurrent of all of that stuff. Anything we do is coming out of this space. As we talk about spiritual practices and disciplines, as we talk about what it means to integrate these into your life as a rule of life, as we talk about what it means to live life together in community in a house church, as we talk about what it means to go out and be salt and light to the world around us, it is all coming from this very basic function of what a follower of Jesus is. That is to be with him, become like him, and to join him in his work. Now, to borrow some of Dallas Willard's language from earlier, the greatest issue facing our church and our city today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who provide profession or culture identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him and how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. One of the reasons we teach on this so frequently is because it is the most important thing to get right as a community of Jesus followers. Step one, if we're all on, the, on different pages about what it actually means to follow Jesus, we're not going to get to step two. Or there's going to be 37 step twos. But step one, what does that actually mean to follow him? To be with him, become like him, join him in his work. I think from there, God can do a whole lot with our church community. Now, here's the beauty. Like, no matter what your story is, you're invited in. There's no coercion. There's no guilt. There's not even, like, the passing inevitability that this will just happen to you because you want it to happen to you. But there is invitation. Through the love of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the, the work of Jesus, and the empowerment of the Spirit, you are actually enabled to join him. We have access to God, and we are invited in. Jesus says we're not, we're not slaves, we're not minions. It's like we're friends. We're adopted sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges. And so when Jesus says, follow me, it's not an abstract thing, and it's actually not hyperbole. It's not impossible. It's the actual life he's called us to live. Is to orient our life around being with him, becoming like him, and joining him in his work. Now, as we head into the next few weeks together as a church community, talking more about the how that this gets fleshed out, my encouragement for you today is to simply settle in yourself the invitation extended to you to be with Jesus, to become like him, to join him in his work. Some of you may need to hear that the invitation is for you. It's not for someone else only. It is for you. And you may be immediately creating all these excuses in your mind of I can't because of this or I can't because of that. I don't have enough time. If you only knew my story, if you only knew my history, whatever. And I'm here to say, if Jesus has called you to be with him, he has called you to be with him. No ifs, ands, or buts. And the invitation to become like him and to join him is extended to you. But also with the reality that it is an invitation and is not inevitable just because you show up at church or just because you have a vague idea of who God is. It will not just happen. It requires participation and intentionality. 
grace-filled, spirit-filled, but yes, your participation and intentionality. And so as we respond a bit in some worship, I think I just want to lean into that idea just a little bit. I know I don't have a practice attached to it. I know it may not feel super practical. And I'm sort of saving those for the next couple of weeks. But I think today I just want us as a community to settle like this is the Jesus life that we've been invited into. No one's forcing you to it. I just think, my card's on the table, I just think this is a way more compelling life than sort of vaguely understanding there's a God out there and showing up to church when it's convenient for me. Like, I think this kind of life is far more compelling and adventurous and fruitful. And so I think just very humbly, I want to say, like, I want to try to live this out better, and I want you guys to do it with me.